that we've been talking about over the last uh, you know several weeks um, tomorrow. And it's so wonderful that he's able to be joined by his lovely wife, Shannon, who is with us today. So Toby Janicki is a teacher, writer, and project manager for First Fruits of Zion and Vine of David and the theological support coordinator for Torah Club. As we know, we have three Torah Clubs here uh, as a part of our community. Toby has written several books, including this one here, which is uh, his most recent, which it's called The Way of Life, and it's a, a new translation and commentary on the Didache. The Didache is the oldest text and uh, probably one of the most important texts for the, for the earliest followers of Yeshua outside of the New Testament. And so it's uh, important. And so if you have questions, you, you know, Toby is exactly the person to ask. He, um, he's also the author of God-fearers, Gentiles, and the God of Israel, as well as numerous articles. He holds a degree in practical theology from Christ for the Nations in Dallas, Texas, and is married with four kids, his oldest of which just started university. And so <laughs> we were talking about that last night. And so um, it was wonderful to have Toby and Shannon over to our house for Shabbat dinner last night where we kept them up way too late, <laughs> but they made it here this morning. And so let's please, like, let's give a, a very warm welcome to Toby Janicki. Can you hear me? Okay. Is it on now? Yes? Okay. All right, great. Well, Shabbat Shalom, everyone. It's, uh, it's a real honor to be here. Um, I've heard a lot about Beth Emunah, and I'm just so glad it worked out, and the Brumbox invited us, and so really great to be here, especially with my wife, uh, with four kids, we don't get a lot of alone time. Uh, even we have all four kids of ours are teenagers, and we still had to have a sit-down meeting about two weeks ago that you just can't barge into our room at any time, <laughs> mom and dad. That's our sanctuary in there. Um, so we we flew in yesterday, and uh, does anybody else? I have the in. This incredible bad luck, anytime I choose a lane in traffic or a line, like it doesn't matter what lane I choose, it's always going to be the worst. Like sometimes I think, so I, I, you know, you see like three lanes in traffic and I think, okay, this is the one I'd normally choose, so that's going to be the worst, so instead I'm going to choose a different one. So we were, uh, we were at the airport yesterday and, uh, you know, plenty of time had just actually dropped our daughter off at school, got to the airport, and we get through security, we're going through security, and we get to the point where it divides up into three lines. You know, three lines for the guy who's gonna check your passport and so forth. And I'm looking at that and I just like panic. And I panic, which line should I choose? And, uh, you know, so the, the, the lady, the TSA lady, she's like, she's like, well, we need people on the right. So I was like, okay, well, I'll go on the right. Meanwhile, Shannon's like, let's not go on the right. I'm like, no, we should go on the right. <laughs> and so we go on the right, and it's like our line is like dead stopped, dead stopped. All the other lines, there's like people behind me, you know, that I see in the other lines who are like way behind us going. I'm like, what is going on? Turns out we have a trainee checking the bags, you know, with the camera, you know, there. So I was like, we, so we get, we get through there. 
it's like we have like 15 minutes till the plane takes off. So we're like running, running through the airport. Literally, Shannon's like, I, I can't keep it. So I was like, fine. I was like, I'm going ahead. I'll get to the gate. Barely made it to the gate. I was like, oh, my wife is coming. You know, so finally they, they let us in and everything was fine. But uh, it was, you know, it was great. We, we made it. Good time, good adventure story and so forth. So we're in the month of Elul. As, uh, as everybody's been talking about this morning, we're in the 40 days of repentance of Teshuvah before uh, Yom Kippur. So as you all know, this is kind of a time where you, you take introspection of yourself. And I always recommend for people to create lists, you know, have some kind of list that you create of the things you, you work on. And so uh, I, had this, I have this book that I'm actually going through, this Elul book, and it recommends you have three different lists. You have a list of things between you and God, and then things between you and others, and then things between you and yourself. And it's been kind of really helpful. So I recommend, if you haven't created some kind of list of the things you want to work on, do it. If you, you, know, if you have trouble coming up with stuff, ask your spouse. They'll, they'll help you fill that in there, uh, or ask a, ask a good friend. But uh, I, I like to think of when, you know, the, the, when you're creating these lists, right, and you're sitting down and you're like, I'm, this year I'm going to be the best person, I'm going to get my life on track, you know, get my finances in order, I'm going to do that diet I always want to do, I'm going to stop getting angry and be patient. And, you know, we create this list and we're, we're kind of in this, in this mode when we create it. I like to call it the, the silver chair. Are you guys familiar with C.S. Lewis? You, you know C.S. Lewis? So he wrote these, the Chronicles of Narnia, and I read these when I was, uh, when I was a child. Loved these books and read, actually read them to my children and so forth. Uh, but there's this one called The Silver Chair, and the premise of the story is, there's these, I can't remember what the kids' names are, but these kids end up in this kind of underground city. And it's very dark in there, but it's this underground city, and there's this evil queen who's over the city, and there's this prince in the, there, and his name is Prince Rillian. Now, Prince Rillian is really supposed to be, he's supposed to become the king up on the ground, up on, uh, you know, above ground in, in, the, in Narnia. But he's, he's in this, he's under there with the queen. I, I don't know why. C.S. Lewis always has the, 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 the evil person is always a woman. I don't know, he had like an overbearing mother or something. You know, I don't, I don't know what the, he's got some women issues, but... Yeah, I don't, know what's, I don't know what's going on there. But anyway, so, so, so Prince Rillian, he goes around, he's like, you know, he's with these kids, and he's like, I love it here, this is great, this is my home, I, I want to be here, you know, it's, it's fabulous. And he goes, but the thing is, he goes, for an hour each night, he goes, I'm going to go crazy. That's just who I am, I go crazy for an hour. He goes, so what we do is we strap me in this silver chair, and we, and, and we, you know, I'm strapped in with these straps and I can't move. And then we close the door. And he said, here's the thing. He tells the kids, he says, no matter what I say or do, don't let me out of that silver chair. They're like, okay, fine. You know, I, if you go crazy, we don't want to let you out. That's fine. But it turns out when he's sitting in that silver chair for an hour, that's actually when he's sober-minded. Because the queen has put this spell over him during the day. But for an hour each night, he's actually thinking clearly. And he sits in that chair and he goes, he's like, please, let me out. I'm, I'm supposed to be the king. I don't belong down here. I don't want to be down here. I, I, I'm supposed to be somewhere else. This is not my home. 
And so finally the kids get the, you know, get the idea that he's really fine and they let him out and the story works out. But I like to think when we're creating these lists, right, we're in the silver chair, right? We're like, I'm going to be on this diet and, you know, I, that's it. I'm not eating dessert anymore. I'm going to stop having seconds. And, and we're in the silver chair. And then, like, you know, we get in the Oneg line after service. And we're no longer in the silver chair. And uh, this guest teacher named Toby went on for a half an hour, and I'm extra hungry. And so, you know, I'll just have a little bit of dessert. I'll have a little bit, and we go up, you know. But this is what happens, right? We, 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 we sit in the silver chair, and we, and we think the best, we, we want to create this best person of ourselves during the month of Elul, but then we get out of that. So what do we do? So I was, uh, I was reading a, a, a commentary on the Torah portion this week by the Svas Emes, he's a, he's a Hasidic Rebbe, and uh, so he's, he comments on the first verse of our Torah portion. The first verse says, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you. And so he's, he kind of goes a little bit, we'll, we'll get to the, to the Peshat, to the, to the plain meaning of that verse in just a minute, but he goes a little bit beyond that, and he, he applies this to yourself to applying judges and officers over yourself. So he says, how do we keep from sinning? How do we keep from getting in the same bad habits? He, sa he says that we have to guard ourselves. We have to judge ourselves and then guard ourselves. So it, really what he's talking about was very similar to this silver chair experience where we sit down and we, and, we, and we resolve not to do the same things that we always do, not to commit the same sins that we always do commit, but instead we're going to use our Torah knowledge, we're going to use the Holy Spirit that's upon us, we're, he calls it, uh, he calls it uh, wisdom and knowledge, we use our wisdom and knowledge and we're going we're gonna to resolve to do good. But then he says, well what do we do, what do we do when we're not in that state of wisdom and knowledge, right? What do we do when we're in the Oneg line and we're no longer in the silver chair. And he says that's where the officers come in. What are the officers? He says the officers, he divides it up into two things. He says the officers are, 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 are first of all, we should defer back to what we resolved when we were in our sober mind, when we were clear thinking. We should remember what we resolved to do, what we said we're going to accomplish, what, we're, what we said we're not going to do again. But he said the second thing that we rely on when we get out of this state of wisdom and knowledge is peer pressure. And the thing is, this is what I always, you know, people often say, uh, you know, you know I'm, I'm hanging around, you know, a, a, a questionable group of people to be a light, Okay. I, I tell my kids all the time, you become like who you're around, right? You look at, uh, you look at Korok's rebellion. Who were all the people that went with Korok to do the rebellion? They were all the people that were encamped around him. The sages say, woe to the wicked and woe to his neighbor. In other words, you're going to become like the people around you. So we need to surround ourselves with people that are going to encourage godly Behavior. That's why communities like this are so important, where we come and we check in and we have friends that will keep us accountable. 
so that when we get, at, you know, when we resolve to do these good things and we tell other people, hey, this is what my resolve is, and then, you know, maybe we have a friend that can remind us in the Oneg line that, you know, your, your plate's a little heavy there, you know. Uh, maybe consider putting, you know. But in all seriousness, that we need that accountability. We need to surround ourselves with godly people to help us. So I encourage you in those areas during this month of Elul. So let's go back to that. Let's go back to this section. I want to read this. And let's talk about the Peshat, the plain meaning here. So it says, you shall appoint judges. This is Deuteronomy 16, 18. You shall appoint judges and officers in your town that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes. They shall judge the people with righteous judgment and you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality and you shall not accept a bribe. A bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So basically what you have is you have these judges set up in communities that handle problems. So why do you have judges and officers? Well, you go to the judges. Let's say a case comes up, something, uh, you know, I have this dispute with my friend and the judges rule in favor of my friend. I've got to, I've got to pay my friend a certain amount of money. Well, who ensures that I pay my friend a certain amount of money according to the rule of the judges? That's where the officers come in. They administrate justice, make sure it's carried out, enforce the ruling of the judges. So, of course, these judges are not to show partiality. They're not to take bribes. Uh, it's an incredible system of justice in the Torah. And then, of course, the Torah says there in verse 20, right? It says, justice and only justice you shall follow. Literally, it just says, justice, justice you shall pursue. So the sages ask the question, why does it repeat justice? Why doesn't it just say justice you shall pursue? Why does it say justice, justice? The answer is because that even in our pursuit of justice, we have to be just. In other words, according to the Torah, the ends never justify the means. It always has to be justice and righteousness no matter what, and we can never deviate from that. So then we go on to chapter 17 and verse 10. And actually, we'll start in verse 8. What we're going to talk about, so you have these courts in your local communities, and then you have the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. So it says, if any case arises requiring decision, a decision be made between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go to the place that the Lord your God will choose. And you will come to the Levitical priest and to the judge who is in the office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. So if the courts in the local area have a case and they think, oh, this, is a, this is really difficult, I can't figure out how to rule on this, I don't know who's right, or, or maybe it's something that's going to have great consequences within all of Israel, they say, well, we're going to defer this court. So we're going to defer this to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is like the supreme court, right? In this country, if you have a case on a local level and a court decides, well, I don't think we can rule on this, they move it up, move it up, and finally it reaches the supreme court. Well, in Israel, the supreme court is the Sanhedrin. So it says, 
Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you, according to the instruction that they give you. Literally, that says, Pi HaTorah, which means the mouth of the Torah. We'll come back to that. And according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. So the bottom line is that the Sanhedrin has the absolute final say. Whatever they say goes. And the thing is, is it doesn't matter, you know, so, so we're so used to, uh, you know, I grew up in a, in a Protestant, I, I tr probably a lot of you grew up in a, kind of a, a, a Protestant environment, especially those of you who are non-Jewish like myself, but we very much, you know, what, what's the Bible say? You know, this is, this is the word of God, you know, right? And it's like, I don't agree with the pastor. That's not what the Bible says. You know, we're, we're, we, we like to argue everything, you know, and have, have opinions about everything. But the bottom line is you can't do that with the Sanhedrin. You go, well, that's not what the Word of God says. I'm, I'm not doing that, right? The Sanhedrin has the final say. They have been invested with authority from God. It's kind of like he's turned it over to them and said, hey, the Sanhedrin, they're the ones who decide. So the bottom line is that the Torah, right, it doesn't, it doesn't cover every detail. It doesn't cover every single situation. We get overarching principles in the Torah, and we get concepts in the Torah, but there are things that arise where we need something like the Sanhedrin to help us decide and figure things out. So this is actually, in, uh, in traditional Judaism, this is where you get the idea of the, the oral Torah. People always say, you know, what the oral Torah, you know, like this like demonic thing floating around or something like this. What is that? God forbid. Um, but you know, the, so the Torah says you can't add to it, right? Can't add to the Torah, you can't take away. But there are, there are additional rulings we need, like we did the Torah service here, right? We know we're supposed to be reading, reading the scriptures, so how do you do it? So the, the, the sages have, have come up with a, a way we do the Torah. What blessings should we say before we read from the Torah? Sages come up with a blessing. It's a, a standardized blessing. So this is, this is a, like I said, this is where the, the sages get the idea of the oral Torah, pi ha-Torah, the, the mouth of the Torah, the oral Torah, and these traditions are, are passed on. So I want to tell you a story about this authority. Uh, this is a famous story from the Talmud. It's called the Oven of Achnai, the Oven of Achnai. So Achnai means uh, there's an Achnai snake, and the snake likes to wrap around things, and so they call it the Oven of Achnai because there's this oven that they declared impure. We won't get into all the technicalities. It's actually rather boring. Um, but the, the, So they called it the Oven of Achnai because the sages debated so much about this oven. It was as if, as if a snake was coiling around it. So all, of the, all of, so all the sages are meeting, and all of the sages declare through much argumentation that this particular oven is unclean for whatever reason. And Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Eliezer, he rises up and he argues against all of their points and says, no, this oven is pure. And 
and they say, ah, whatever. But the majority of us think it's, uh, it's unclean. So, you know, thanks. Appreciate it, but it's unclean. So Rabbi Eliezer said, he says, he says but uh, what if I can prove it with this carob tree? What does he mean by that? So he, he prays and Hashem takes this, this is a legend, Hashem takes this carob tree, moves it up, and it, it's uprooted and it moves about 100 cubits. This is a miracle. So he says, hey, well, well, right? God's with me. And so they say, we do not bring a proof from a carob tree. In other words, you, you know, that doesn't prove anything. He says, well, what about, if I, what about this water channel? What if I can do something with that? Will that prove it? And so, he, so all of a sudden, the water in this river flows the opposite way. And they say, we don't bring a proof from a water channel. So this kind of goes on and on, all these things. And all of a sudden, he says, well, what if I can bring proof from heaven itself that I'm right? And so all of a sudden, uh, uh, we, we have a voice come from heaven, and it says, uh, What is with you towards Rabbi Eliezer? For the law is like him in every instance. In other words, God is saying through his heavenly voice, he's saying, Rabbi Eliezer is right. And the sages reply back to him, and they say, The Torah is not in heaven. So then, later on, they, uh, the, the, the prophet Elijah asks Hashem, well, what did, you, what did you think when they did that? And he said he smiled and he laughed and he said, my children, my children. Okay, what's the, what's the point of the story? People sometimes get very worked up. They say, well, this is, you know, this, that's the rabbis. They don't care about what God says, only their traditions. But the, the story is a very exaggerated hyperbole to basically say, that God has given the Torah to the Jewish people, and then God entrusted the sages of Israel to interpret that Torah. Now, that, how that works out is, is uh, you know, it's different in, in various communities and in different, in different traditions, but there is some weight to the traditions of the sages. This is not unlike what we have in Matthew 16. Okay, this is where Yeshua says to the disciples, he says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter stands up and he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Yeshua answers him and says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father was in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, and on this rock, I will build my congregation and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I give you... The keys to the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I think most of you know, right, right uh, I grew up charismatic, and we thought binding and loosing was like Satan, you know, so like at the beginning of every service, we would start out, we'd say, we bind you, Satan, you know. I mean, first of all, if that's what it refers to, who's, who's praying like, we loose you, Satan, in this place, right? <laughs> why, like, why would, why would you ever do that? And if we bind him, who is loosening him? I mean, is that rascal just get out all the time? Is that, is that the deal? He just figures, you know, you can bind him up for about two hours during the service, and then he figures his way out, and then we have to bind him up again. But rather, this is talking about making legal rulings. To bind something is to forbid it, to lose something is to permit it. So Yeshua is basically saying to Peter and to the 12 that I'm giving you authority. I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. 
And you're going to have to make rulings in the new messianic assembly. And whatever you rule will be accepted in heaven. Whatever you rule on earth will be accepted in heaven. So it's funny because we really have only one recorded instance of where the, uh, of where the, the, the apostles actually carry out this authority. And that's in Acts chapter 15, right? So the question in Acts chapter 15 is, do Gentiles, in order to be a part of, of, of the Messianic movement, in order to be a part of, to be d- disciples of Yeshua and the kingdom of heaven, do they have to legally convert and become Jewish? That's the question. When, when they say, do they have to be circumcised, it's not actually the, 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 you know, just the act of circumcision, but that's an idiom to say, do they, do they need to become legally Jewish? We're going to talk a lot more about that tomorrow. And so uh, we have there in Acts chapter 15 and verse 1, it says, uh, some men came from down from Judea and were teaching brothers and said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so, of course, they start debating and deliberating this. And then eventually, they make a decision. Okay, are they going to make the Gentiles convert and become legally Jewish? Or are they going to allow them to remain as Gentiles? And they finally decide that they are going to loose the Gentiles. They are going to permit them to be a, a part of the kingdom of heaven, to be disciples of Yeshua, without becoming legally Jewish. It says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. So they exercise that authority. What do they base that decision on? They base it on two things. James and the rest of the apostles base it on two things. The first is Peter's experience with Cornelius. Now, in the the Talmud, we see this in rabbinic literature. We see where if a great sage has an experience or something happens to him, that because if it's a great sage, that they could actually base a ruling upon his actions or his experience. Uh, In Hebrew, this is called a ma'aseh. Ma'aseh, they can, so so if a rabbi, let's say a rabbi they see on, Shabbat, uh, let's say, you know, like in a, uh, in a really orthodox setting, you can't carry anything. And let's say you can't carry anything uh, outside. Uh, let's say they see a rabbi and it's pouring rain out. And so they see him carrying an umbrella to the synagogue. So you could, you could say, well, well, rabbi so-and-so did this. So therefore, uh, we can base a ruling. We can say it's permitted. So Peter, of course, right, he goes and, and he meets Cornelius the Gentile, and, bef- and, and while, while Peter is speaking to them, all of a sudden, Cornelius and his family, they start speaking in other languages. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon Cornelius and his family. What is, what's so important about it? To us, it's like, what, a Gentile is a Holy Spirit? You know, what, what's, what, yeah, what's the big deal? To them, it's like, oh my gosh, you know. It's like, they're not supposed to have that. Uh, there's actually a legend that the Holy Spirit was taken up, away from Gentiles based upon uh, the story of Balaam and Balak. Now, that's a whole nother, uh, a whole nother side 
trail there. But what, so what happens? So when the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit can fall upon Gentiles, that means that these Gentiles who accept Yeshua are actually holy. That God accepts them. That's like God's, the Holy Spirit upon you is like God's hexer, right? His kosher symbol upon you, that you're now kosher. So when the Holy Spirit falls upon these Gentiles, it's proof that God accepts them as Gentiles. They don't need to do anything else. So that's the first thing they base that on, that God accepted Cornelius and his family as Gentiles, proof that God accepts Gentiles and that they're clean. The second is a proof text from Amos. We'll dig into this a little bit more tomorrow. But basically, the proof text from Amos is talking about the restoration of the tent of David, which is really... It's talking about the messianic era to come where the temple is restored and the Davidic monarchy is restored and Messiah comes and he rules and reigns. But in that passage where it's talking about the messianic era, it mentions Gentiles who come to know the God of Israel. But what's important about that is that Gentiles are specifically mentioned in the messianic era. It means that the messianic era is not just com comprised of the Jewish people. The Messianic era is Jews and Gentiles worshiping together the God of Israel. So if the apostles say, well, these Gentiles actually have to convert and become legally Jewish, that means that the Messianic era is not at hand. It's not a picture of the Messianic era. So when I look out here in this congregation and we see Jews and Gentiles worshiping together, this is a picture of the Messianic era, of the kingdom to come. This is what the apostles had in mind there in Acts 15. So, obviously, in the kingdom model, there is still a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. So we ask ourselves, where does this leave Gentile believers? What is their actual status within the community? What is their obligation to the Torah of Moses? What can and can't they do? What should they be doing? And all of that we'll cover tomorrow. Shabbat shalom. <laughs>